0: Welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Justin McGeary. I'm a host of this channel, and today we'll be talking about the book To Think Christianly, A History of Labrie Region College and the Christian Study Center Movement, written by Charles Cotherman. Uh, So, Charles, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah. The book uh, tells us a little bit uh, about the history of what is a little known uh, movement of Christian study centers, a network of centers found around uh, North America tied to major uh, research universities. And uh, it's, it's telling a story particularly about the late 20th century, mid to late uh, up to our day of evangelical and evangelicalism uh, and not documented by anyone. This is kind of a first of its kind. So um, Charles, could you tell us, How you came to write the book
1: yeah so the book kind of came out of my own history you know I I I was raised in the evangelical tradition but not a really uh, intellectual one in fact they were kind of scared of it and so as I kind of went through undergrad and then into seminary I started to kind of wrestle with the history of evangelicalism and my own and so that kind of drove me to pursue you know uh, eventually a PhD in um, religious studies with a focus on American religious history and a focus on evangelicalism within that. Um, and I've had some mentors along the way that were really um, kind of powerful in that formation. So Scott Sunquist was my professor at Pittsburgh Seminary when I was there, and he kind of helped shape that historical and yet very much practical ministry drive in me. Um, so I found myself pursuing this hist- uh, study of history, and I thought I was going to write kind of on mid-century evangelicals, maybe Harold Ockengay, maybe a biography. And then I got to UVA. Um, and it had to be like the first day or two I was at the University of Virginia. People started saying, you know, you got to check out the Center for Christian Study. And and at first, you know, I was just like, you know, it's some parachurch ministry. I didn't think much about it. But as I continued to hear about it from almost everyone, I was like, well, I got to check this out. And so it started with kind of just you know, getting some free coffee, spending some time there, getting to know some people. And then what I found as I went further into my study was that the history that I was looking into in mid-century evangelicalism, people like Auchingay, people like Schaefer, um, it actually kind of came together with the history of this study center, which I found was part of a bigger movement. And as I kept digging and, you know, a course, paper here and there, um on the history of the study center there at uva i realized no one's written this and it was just kind of it almost felt providential it was just like this is the time to do it and so we jumped right in
0: that's great um i guess one thing um i jumped the gun a little bit asking how you came to write it could you just tell us a little bit about yourself
1: yeah sure um yeah and it is it like i said it's all it's all wrapped up kind of into one um the book really comes out of who I am. I mean, like I said, I was raised in this kind of uh, evangelical tradition. Um, and it was it was like, you know, uh, everyone should go to college, but don't go to too much school or you'll probably end up not loving God. Um, and so I kind of wrestled with that. didn't really come from a, a family that had much experience in college and from a pretty rural area. And so it took a while to figure out how everything worked. Um, but it, but it was, it was just a handful of people, you know, that made a difference. Um, my wife and I spent a year in New Haven, Connecticut, right after we were married. Um, and we kind of, that's where we actually found the Vineyard Movement, which is the movement we're a part of. And we passed her in, um, and found some, probably even just as importantly, some really good friends who were like, love Jesus, uh, leading churches and working on PhDs at places like Princeton and Yale. And we were like, man, these are like, this this feels like the kind of people we want to be. Um, and so it kind of lit a little academic bug and spark in us. Um, and so we ended up both going through kind of a, a long story of God's providence, which we weren't seeking, um, both to the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and God provided financially for that. And while we were there, we had a couple real mentors and Scott Sunquist being probably the primary one. Um, he's now the president of Gordon Conwell, but then he was a professor of mission and church history, and both of those things are so uh, dear to us, and he just exemplified what it looked like to be a scholar who cared about the church and who was, you know, an extrovert and former D1 athlete. It was just like the kind of person I wanted to be, so it was a really motivating thing. Um, and so working with him, I did write a thesis on Harold Ockengay. And I thought I was going to work on that in my PhD program, Um, but got into UVA and, and God really provided through that. And while we were there, I thought I was going to be a a full-time professor with like a little bit of dabbling in the church. And while we were there, I just realized like my heart is for the church. Um, And so, you know, from basically almost the last 10 years has been like a, a constant kind of walk with God about how do you balance a desire to be in academics and a desire to be in the church, you know, and that's really where we're at. We came back, my wife and I planted oil city vineyard church, um, very close to where we both grew up. We're both from the same small town of 1200 people in rural Western PA. And so about a half an hour from that, there's this town called oil city, which is um, along with Titusville, Pennsylvania, where the petroleum industry got its start. Um, Oil city exists because of oil and Uh, It it was the former headquarters of Quaker State Motor Oil um, until 1994. So it's a place um, that we knew and that had experienced a lot of kind of economic downturn. And we just felt God pulling us back. So we planted the church about five and a half years ago now. So the other thing I do is um, I work at Grove City College as part of the project on rural ministry. I'm the program director for that. Um, one of the five directors on the project, and it's a five-year, million-dollar Lilly grant project that we're trying to figure out how a Christian liberal arts college can be a resource and also learn from um, and connect with rural pastors in the area surrounding it. So we're working with pastors from southwestern New York State to eastern Ohio, western PA, and northern West Virginia.
0: That's great. So it was the PhD work that landed you uh, in this topic, but particularly at UVA, which uh, and the study center that uh, you actually do have a whole chapter on in your book. Um, So in the introduction, you actually, one of the things you talk about very briefly is what a study center is. And maybe you could start there. Just tell us a little bit about that before we march through the book.
1: Yeah, that'd be great because a lot of people don't know what I mean, when I say study center and, you know, maybe they've encountered Labrie or they've encountered Regent college, or maybe they've encountered one of these centers at a a university, but they don't know it's part of a movement and, and that there's like an actual study center movement. So when, when I talk about a study center, the definition I came up with for the book is a Christian study center is a local Christian community dedicated to spiritual intellectual and relational flourishing via the cultivation of deep spirituality, intellectual and artistic engagement and hospitable presence and all of those are important you cannot have a study center if you don't have intellectual and cultural engagement you can't have a study center if it's not hospitable presence because you know there's a lot of online programs and things like that but to be a study center you have to be embodied in a place Um, and so that's super important and there's really about four ways and this is drew trotter's taxonomy drew was the head of the consortium of christian study centers for a number of years he's recently retired but he came up with this kind of four-part breakdown of the different kinds of study centers, and I think it's helpful to think about it this way. So the one that the book really focuses on, especially toward the end, is the university-based study centers, and that's probably the leading edge of growth right now is, you know, these Christian communities that are popping up just off campus at a number of major universities and some smaller ones, um, and there's a ton of room, and I can talk about that later, ton of room for growth there. And then the other kinds of study centers, there's a destination study center. So if you know anything about Libri, and we can talk about that in a few minutes, um, those are the kind of study centers you you really, there's nothing else there. You go to a place to be at that study center. It's a destination in and of itself. There are also church-based study centers. And a lot of times these are at large megachurches. Um, so Drew Trotter, before he became the head of the consortium, he was the head of the Center for Christian Study UVA. But before that, he was the head of a study center at a large church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So church-based study centers also exist. And then there are city-focused study centers, and and that's um, study centers like the C.S. Lewis Institute that's in cities around the world. Um, they're not really focused on a, a campus or you know something like that, but they really want to think about what does integrating the gospel in a head and heart kind of way look like? in this place at this time.
0: Yeah. So I, for our l- listeners who may not be familiar, it's definitely not like a Bible college or something like that. They're, they're particularly the ones you focus on and where this study center movement comes from are those tied to some major university, um, particularly with a place, but they're not particularly just uh, a local church sort of thing or, um, or as you said, a, a destination study center.
1: Right. Yeah, probably the most, the one I focus on the most and the one that I think there's the most room for growth and the one that's personally most compelling to me and most interesting to me are these university-based study centers. And and the way those typically work, and so the Center for Christian Study at UVA is one of the oldest. Um, it's from the mid-70s. It was founded and has been in existence from that time. Um, basically, what, what most of these study centers do is a group of Christians uh, start having a burden for the campus and for the students and they want to engage in a way that's both like, intellectual and and deeply spiritual and deeply prayerful. And they're not always sure how to do that. And in some cases, like the case of the study center at UVA, they didn't have access to the university grounds or campus at that point. So they had to find somewhere off campus to meet and they bought a house um, that's a a block away. And so this became the study center and all the programming ran through that place. And so a lot of times you'll find that study centers at campuses and universities are in houses that ministries and 501c3s uh, purchase that are located very close to the campus, but they're not beholden to the university in any way.
0: So your story, of this movement of these study centers because they have their origin further back. Um, You start in essentially the 1950s and 1960s in part one on innovation Um, and chapter one you cover uh, Francis Schaeffer and Labrie uh, and then in chapter two you look at Regent College uh, and James Houston. Maybe we could start tell us a little bit about Schaeffer and Labrie and how they innovate.
1: uh, Yep for sure and it's you know it's, it is interesting. You, so you have the basically the books about the development of a North American or a, really a U.S. almost study center movement. But it starts, one, with an American in Switzerland, and then two, with uh, an Englishman in Vancouver, Canada at Regent College. But if you follow the history, it really makes sense that those were the two kind of catalysts for this movement. So Francis Schaefer, he's this fundamentalist American pastor. Um Fun fact, he pastored in Grove City, Pennsylvania. So there's a little church just off the campus of Grove City College where Schaefer pastored. Um, And then he went on to the suburbs of Philly and then St. Louis before he and his wife became missionaries to post-World War II Europe. And one of the reasons they were missionaries is, A, he was was well-respected in his denomination. um, but, But also, they were known as innovators in children's ministry. And so they were ministering to children. In Europe. But while they were there, um, and this is one of the things that kind of made them kind of fall afoul uh, of the International Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, is that they started seeing that the real needs um, were needs that that would take longer conversations, that would take like having people to their house and having a meal over coffee. It wasn't going to just happen in a program, you know. And so they started having more and more people to their house. And This didn't look like mission like anyone had seen it, and and in fact, they started having their funding reduced by their sending organization to the point that they eventually cut ties with that organization in 1955 and went on their own as faith faith missionaries um, and founded the ministry of Labrie. And what Labrie was, was basically a chalet, a house on the mountainsides in the Swiss Alps, and backpackers and anyone come there, the cost to stay was very minimal and they would feed you. They'd put you to work for half the day. You'd study for half the day. You'd have lots of time to interact over meals. Um, and so it was a real kind of holistic experience. And that made sense because one of the things that Schaefer really grew into as he grew kind of out of his fundamentalism in many ways and into a more kind of reformed, broadly reformed understanding of the gospel uh, and its implications for all of life, was this idea that everything we do, the gospel should impact. In every sphere of society that's not sin, the gospel should impact. Um, and that is one of the things that stood out to people when they stopped there. In addition to just how much the Shafers prayed and how they really expected God to answer those prayers, they one of the reasons, uh, one of their motivations for starting Libri was that they could be a demonstration of of the fact that God is here and active in our world. Um, and people that were there would say, we saw, you know, prayers for for provision, and it came. Um, and so between being a spiritual community, an intellectual community, Schaefer, um, though he wasn't an academic per se, was a really astute uh, thinker and really astute student of culture. And so he was just most at home, taking students through an art museum or something like that. Um, so it was intellectual and cultural. It was um, really hospitable. It was, a, it was a place where students would talk about having some of the, the kind of best table settings that they had ever seen, like care. Edith, who was a huge part of Brie. Um, It's you can't even imagine Labrie without Edith there, actually, um, even though Schaefer gets a lot of the credit. Edith was just as important. And, you know, people talk about her table settings and her meals and her elaborate menus and just the care she took, you know, uh, for like a young, engaged couple with almost no money. She'd pack them a lunch and say, go for a walk. Um, She was really into the beauty of every day um, and it made a difference. So all of these things marked LaBrie and, and really made it into a fourth kind of community that I argue is an aspirational one. People wanted to recreate this because they said it was so amazing. And they were so moved by just the the spirituality, the intellectual rigor, um, the community and hospitality. And they said, we want to do this back home. We want more people to experience this.
0: Yeah. And one of the things you point out in the book is how um, it particularly in the 70s, they they really become prominent. Uh, You know, they were more or less an unknown uh, organization. Um, But slowly, the 60s and then, particularly in the 70s, they become well-known. And really, one of the features of the book, one of the things you track is the people and networks that are overlapping or passing through Libri uh, and then into other chapters. Um, So they, as you put it, capture the imagination of kind of this generation um, that want to take it and do something with it beyond just the destination. Right. So. Yeah, go yeah ahead. that
1: network, that network is extremely important. And it's one of those things, you know, people know that evangelicalism as a movement is has been network-driven forever, right? Um, but we don't always know how to track that. And in 20th century evangelicalism, I, I think people haven't paid enough attention to this kind of, like, network that grew up around places like Labrie and Regent College and where there would be certain kind of nodes on this hub that you, that people would kind of almost as pilgrims go to, um, especially during that sixties and seventies era where people are backpacking around Europe and stuff, um, forming these relational connections. Um, and in some places, you know, instead of going to to Bible college or seminary, like the credential you needed was to have a letter from Francis Schaeffer and people were like, Oh, we get you. You're in, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so, one of the things is that's interesting as you look at this kind of period of innovation is, uh, so you look at Labrie, which in many ways is kind of informal, very much communal. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, uh, could you tell us a little bit about region college, how it's similar in sort of values and ethos, but in one sense, it, it takes the, the intellectual community, Christian community in a different direction in some ways.
1: Right. Well, the, one of the major drawbacks of Libri and people, you know, would point this out at the time. And then especially in retrospect, people notice it is just how insular it was and how unable Schaefer was to really wrestle with that. Uh, and so it really was about Schaefer, you know, there's this great uh, story about, and I talked about in the book, you know, where like George Marsden um, is taking some Calvin college students over there and when asked Schaefer, if that's okay. And, and, and I think, uh, Richard Mao was there too. And Schaefer's like, the students are welcome, but you guys aren't because he wanted to be like the sole authority. Um, and I, there is some of that. So Regent goes a different direction. You know, there is a similar emphasis on prayer, especially, I mean, they're starting up in this Plymouth brethren community in Vancouver. And I mean, it was a decently affluent Plymouth brethren community, but at the same time to start a new school, um, they needed God's help and they knew it and they were praying and the Granville chapel was with them. You know, most of these study centers by the way have churches that really helped them get started, even though they're not out of the church. Um, and so it was deeply spiritual. It was deeply hospitable. I mean, students were living in professors houses, renting rooms and things like that. It was really a kind of, we hope we make it kind of thing in the early years, you know, starts with summer schools. Um, until they can finally have uh, classes in the fall of 70. So 68, it's founded, two summer schools, and then classes in the fall of 70. Um, But the difference is that from the start, Regent positions itself to actually be at home in the modern university system. It's a goal, and that's something that Houston really brings. He doesn't just want kind of an independent Bible school or even a Christian liberal arts college. He wants a college... um, that is affiliated in an official way with a major university. And it's hard to kind of have a framework for this if you've spent all your time in American university systems, but but really this comes out of the Oxford university system where there are kind of colleges that are separate under themselves on some level, but they're also integrated into the University of Oxford or something. And that was Houston's model. And so this is what he brings over when the committee, the Vancouver committee asks him, would you be willing to be a principal to the founding principal? Um, and interestingly, they had asked FF Bruce, then very noteworthy uh, new Testament scholar of the era. Uh, and Bruce wasn't really willing to leave his full professorship to do that. Um, but he recommended Houston. And so James Houston becomes kind of like the, the figurehead and, and his his personality really does inform it. And he's, really deeply committed at that point and he still is to this day if you hear him talk um to the need for us to focus on the person and not the profession uh to focus on on the fact that we are people uh in connection with god we are not you know chemists or bible scholars or anything like that and so that ethos is part of regent from the very beginning um so so what would often happen is a student might go to go to Labrie and say, "This is great, and this opened my eyes to something that's new." But I want something formal, and you know, and there were a handful of colleges and seminaries that people would go to after Labrie, and Regent became one of the one of the very most prominent of them. And so a lot of times, students that were looking for a little more than what Labrie could offer would go to to, to Regent, or looking to continue that. And so together, between Schaefer, the Schaefers, and Labrie, and Houston and the team, including, I mean, the team was so important up there. It wasn't one man. It was, you know, a whole team of people, including Carl Armadang and uh, Ward Gask and people like that, um, working really hard together, but, but together the influence of these two places, a lot of people in the seventies, the late sixties and seventies were influenced by both. And a lot of the founders of these study centers were influenced by both and, so they would take this like really kind of live and work uh, down to earth, care about everyday art, sensibility of Labrie, the hospitality, um, the open handedness of it. And then they would, they would say, we want to recreate some of that. But we also want this kind of more rigorous, more engaged with the modern university, um, you know, more formal on some level uh, way of, being a study center that we saw at Regent. And so when those two influences came together, I think the results were pretty impressive because they balanced each other out and they added to each other and and complemented each other in a lot of ways, you know? And sometimes you would see a study center that was only influenced by maybe one of the two. And it usually had a harder go than study centers that really came out of kind of this confluence of LaBrie and Regent.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the other things you hit on in both of these chapters is the the timing issue as far as evangelicalism as sort of a movement um, that both of these institutions, so to speak, get traction partially because it's post-World War II, and not only are tons of people going to college, but evangelicals, and they're kind of wrestling with where do they fit. And both of these figures and these institutions kind of help provide some kind of guidance and direction. Um, And I I think one of the other things, again, that's fascinating is how you look at the way that these groups kind of um, blend together at different points through say, InterVarsity's lecture circuit, or um, you see, uh, you mentioned that Regent has connections with Young Life. So just all these different um, connections. Now, one of the things you do point out in that second chapter, Is uh, unlike uh, Schaefer, Houston sees sort of that this is something that's worth replicating, which sort of you use that and his vision to kind of launch into your whole second section where you look at four different study centers. Um, In particular, in chapter three, he's pretty uh, involved in helping to get what's well through a number of different. Uh, stages, of the C.S. Lewis Institute. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of how Houston develops this vision for replication, and then the sort of ups and downs of trying to redo region?
1: Yeah. So that was something that was a surprise for me as I got into the archives. And, and I probably spent the most time, I had a long uh, week in Vancouver in the archives, and it was just so helpful. And Houston, to his credit, just said, anything's open to you. And I was one of the first people to get in. So it was just such a A privilege and such an interesting experience. And so, one of the things that stood out to me as I just combed through these letters was how, like, intentional he was about replicating Regent. You know, after a couple years there, and I mean, it's coming up in like the nineteen seventy four white paper on as Regent looks to the future. There's a whole section on replication, which, by the way, is written by a young guy named Bayot Steiner, who came to the Lord at UVA, who was involved in uh, UVA's campus ministry, went to Labrie, spoke with with Schaefer, wrote to Schaefer, and then ends up at Regent for a one-year diploma and becomes Houston's TA and research assistant. And under Houston's kind of mentorship, catches this vision for replication, writes and presents this white paper And then two years later, he or a year and a half later, he's helping to found the Center for Christian Study at Virginia. So there are direct ties to these ideas about replication and other study centers. The other one you just mentioned, the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., the same kind of thing. So Houston, he started to. As you know, Regent's success Um, people interpreted it different ways. And so for people like Carl Armading, who was an administrator at heart and he was involved in that and he knew the numbers that they'd have to hit just to be like sustainable um, and viable. It was great that they were growing. It was great that students were coming. Now, Houston, who in some ways, you almost have to say is an idealist at heart. For him, he wanted personal interaction with every student. And he started putting out he started kind of chafing under this growth and cause he wanted to know every student and know them well. And so he started putting out numbers. Like if Regent grows above a hundred, I don't think we can do it anymore. We have to replicate. We can't, we can't grow big. We have to multiply. Um, and so this becomes reality as he starts talking to people and he meets people, you know, and starts a long correspondence with, with Doug Coe, um, out of D.C. who works with a lot of uh, politicians in D.C. as kind of a personal chaplain. And he and Houston start talking and Co is so connected out there. And they start looking at the University of Maryland saying, well, we could found a Regent College East at the University of Maryland. And we have this house that was donated to us and this ministry of, of uh, Jim Hiskey, who had been at Labrie, but has a heart for this. And Houston visits there on an intervarsity uh, speaking tour and says, why not here? And Hiskey's like, wow, I don't, I didn't ever even think about that, but maybe. And he, he kind of brings him in, and, you know. And the way Houston hooks him is he he calls him one day, because he's like, well, well, start with the summer school like we did in Vancouver. So Houston calls Hiskey one day, and H- Houston's like, hey, I'm sitting here with John Stott. Do you want to do the summer school? Because he'll come this year. And Hiskey's like, uh, uh, sure. You know, if John Stott wants to come, like I'll do it. And so they start uh, this summer school they're trying to start a study center but they run into some problems first of all the united states is not canada and even in canada like british columbia being kind of on the far west and the last to be settled has some different rules than the other provinces um and it's far different than the way the u.s higher education system is set up and so they it's not as easy to affiliate in the u.s and, and you have to also have enormous endowments for libraries and things like that. And the group started to realize this just isn't going to happen, you know. And so what started as a dream of C.S. Lewis College, which was a region east, um, kind of got narrowed down to what now looks like a, a, a successful but a study center um, model in, in, in the city. But Houston was really there, and, and it looked like for a while he was going to move to D.C., to actually head this up, and he was on the board for decades, um, but you know, t- I think to his credit, actually, at least if you if if you take him at his word in his letters, uh, he really thought his wife and family couldn't handle another major
0: move, and he said, "I, I just can't leave." It's interesting to see the uh, the attempt. That was one attempt at replication, um, which kind of changed from the original vision. Um, Another attempt, which you cover in chapter four, which has uh, a little bit more of the destination kind of uh, study center, a little bit more like Labrie, is the Ligonier Valley Study Center in western Pennsylvania. Um, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, R.C. Sproul and some of the folks that were with him and how they, how the study center crops up in sort of a rather remote uh, part of the country.
1: Yeah, So R.C. Sproul and the Ligonier Valley Study Center is fascinating. It's fascinating to me personally because I'm a Western PA guy, and here we have rural Western Pennsylvania represented. Um, And we also have kind of the out-migration of rural Western Pennsylvania represented. Um, But, yeah, so R.C. Sproul, blue-collar guy, ends up at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary after going to Westminster College, um, all in Western PA, and at Pittsburgh, his life really changes when he's mentored by John Gerstner, the great reform scholar uh, who had studied Jonathan Edwards and um, Gerstner's influence on Sproul is really lifelong. He becomes part of the Ligonier Valley Study Center later on. And, and so this helps Sproul kind of move into some deeply reformed thinking that he's known for today. Um, And, so Sproul, he tries his hand at a few things. He he goes to uh, Conwell Theological Seminary, but then the next year it's shut down in Philly because they're going to merge with Gordon Conwell. He decides not to move to uh, Boston, um, and he he takes a position at a suburban church teaching adult education, and then he's eventually he's out in Cincinnati doing it, and he gets he's really becomes very well known within certain circles for adult education. And so his Sunday night classes in Cincinnati are like more people are attending them than, than worship at the church on Sunday morning. And, and, you know, people uh, really love what he's doing. And so he has always stayed in connection with people in Pittsburgh. And so the, there's a lot of work going on in Pittsburgh this time with like the Pittsburgh offensive, which was a group of people trying to, to really make uh, the city of Pittsburgh as n- well known for God as for steel was their saying, um, and so they're pulling him in and they're thinking like, how can we train up these, uh, campus workers, you know, for, for ministries, especially like, uh, uh, coalition of Christian Outreach, CCO, which starts in Pittsburgh, you know, a reformed campus ministry. And they're thinking about starting a study center in Oakland, in, in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh, which if you know, Pittsburgh is right where Pitt is Carnegie Mellon. It makes a lot of sense. And this is where all the momentum's headed. Until um, an heiress steps in and says, you know, I'll actually fund you and give you acreage if you move out next to where I live in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, in the Ligonier Hills. It was kind of like the playground of the millionaires a generation before. And so long story short, it's an offer that seems too good to refuse. So Sproul and his team go out there. They look at it, he talks to her. And the other thing that happens at right about that time is he goes down and Schaefer's at one of his very earliest conferences in the US down at Covenant College in Lookout, Tennessee. And while he, while Schaefer's there, Sproul finds a way to meet with him. And he, they meet at the president's house, if I remember right, and they have this long meeting that Schaefer comes out of that, Sprohl comes out of that meeting thinking, okay. We're going to do it. And so Labrie is really his model. Now, uh, Sproul's, the way he ran Ligonier was a lot, in some ways, different than Labrie and in some ways very similar. In a similar way, they would host families, host uh, students in family houses. They'd feed them. It was very much about hospitality and teaching and working together. Um, But Ligonier from the start was more for... Christians who wanted to grow deeper in their faith than for seekers. Labrie was always for seekers. um, And and there was a lot of conversion there. I think Ligonier didn't see, and Sproul told me this himself in an interview, like that wasn't their main thing. Their main thing was Christian education. Um, But partially, I think, because Labrie was their main model, they ran into some problems. First of all, Ligonier, Stallstown, Pennsylvania, it's a beautiful place. It's still not the Alps. Um and it's still, you know, it's not the sixties, it's the seventies, like that footloose generation isn't as willing to travel around, their money's getting a little tighter, things like that. It's harder and harder to draw enough students to Stahlstown. Um they are finding that it is also harder and harder to sustain their staff who are getting burnt out, whose own families are are having a very difficult time hosting all these students all the time for dinner and stuff like that so they start by cutting that part of their programming and building like a residence hall and eventually um they hire a consultant because they're barely making it financially they hire a consultant named bob beal to help them kind of take some ground and when Beale looks at what they're doing he says okay he, he, I think he literally says something to the effect of, "Sprole is the goose that lays the golden egg. You got to put him front and center and make his teaching the draw. And so part of that is, well, we have this new technology of video. Let's just videotape him and distribute it widely. Well, that ministry takes off. He's one of the pioneers of video. And what they discover is we don't need this residential place anymore. And so they really go from being a study center to when they moved to Orlando in 84, which at that point in time doesn't have that many Christian ministries or anything. It it has Disney as a destination and Sproul can golf all year long. When they move there, they basically cease to be a study center and they become kind of a distributor of of Sproul's curriculum and material. Um, So it was it was this interesting transformation that happens there. But partially because they just couldn't be liberating. People couldn't sustain the the effort of hosting people all the time. They didn't have the same kind of draw uh, in Town, And it wasn't the mid-60s anymore or the early 70s. It was like the late 70s and early 80s. And people just, the culture was changing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there's two things uh, that your comment just prompted is that there's a, you, you do a good job in the book of showing shifts. Uh, cultural shifts that are happening um, that make the study centers, you know, give them ups or downs, uh, one being the shift from the 60s and 70s into the 80s. Um, but the other thing, you you show the interesting parallel between um, the rise of the technology and video, which Schaefer also rides that wave a little bit. That brings a bit of a change to L'Abrie as it really substantially changes the Ligonier Study Center. So it, it, it sort of as far as that the study center movement you know ligonier kind of it removes itself more or less from that yeah um but you oh go ahead
1: no yeah that's right it does it basically does it decides this is not where we want to put our effort
0: yeah you you look then at one of the other interesting locations going to the west coast now um, new college berkeley uh, with david gill and sharon gallagher who Uh, themselves kind of get captured both by uh, Regent as well as Labrie for vision. Could you tell us a little bit about what they build there or attempt to build?
1: Yeah, I think if if I could go back to one of these communities during its prime, I think this would be the most interesting one to go back to. I mean, you basically have right at the tail end of the major hippie movement in Berkeley, this group of Christian hippies that also really want to think, well, they're Berkeley educated, Um, and, and they, they, they're looking to really live out the gospel with their minds and their hearts, uh, you know, heart and hand kind of thing. And they see region as a really strong model of what lay Christian theological education can be. And that's an important theme in this book. And in the study center movement is it's lay theological education, right? Like. I came to this project after studying, you know, Ockengain the creation of Fuller and then Gordon Conwell. And this is like, you know, clergy theological education, but lay theological education is different. And one of the ways it's different is it's so open to everyone. And, and one of the streams and threads in this book that is worth at least noting is how this allows more and more women to actually get theological education because it's lay, you know, and you don't have to jump through any hoops. Um, and so Berkeley is, you know, the epitome of this egalitarian, lay theological education. Um, and what they do is they found a free university, which was a um, pretty significant movement in in the '60s, um, where you know there's this push to kind of get rid of bureaucracy, level the playing field, make education free, and there would be free universities popping up, not Christian, but just popping up all over. Berkeley had one. Um, Well, they decide to make a one of these as Christian And, and they're they're doing it and and you know, like so many of these ventures, they're barely getting by. Like it's not financially viable. At the same time, Gil is down at USC earning his PhD. He's studying a Lull. Um and so when he comes back with PhD in hand, he's kind of ready to take it to the next step. This is no longer, you know, the hippie movement has come and gone. What does a long-standing lay theological uh, emphasis look like in Berkeley. And he kind of gets with his network there in the Bay Area. They can connect. He connects with Regent. Long story. He spends a week at Regent learning as much as he can about it. Long story short, they are really trying to be Regent South. They are really trying to be a graduate school for the laity. Um, The problem is, again, Times have changed, Um, and location, too, really matters. Uh, In retrospect, it really becomes clear that Vancouver was such a providential place to start the school because even you might think Berkeley would be a draw, but, I mean, you had a fuller branch campus close by. You had lots of options there. Plus, Regent wasn't that far away if you wanted to hop on a plane, and so they found it was hard to get enough students. They had a great product. Um, but they just couldn't get enough students to make it sustainable. Um, but for for about a decade, I mean, they had some big names, full-time professors, and they were going as hard as you possibly could. Um, but they eventually had to basically downsize, sell their property, rent space. Um, and it's still in existence. They actually just hired a new director, um, but it doesn't look like what it looked like in the 70s. It looks more like a study center not a graduate school of late theological education.
0: Yeah, 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 so it, it it's interesting because it, the C.S. Lewis Institute, Ligonier Valley Study Center, and New College Berkeley all sort of in different ways attempt something of either Regent or Labrie or some combination of both, but ultimately kind of land in three different places, and then that Finally, uh, the last one that you focus on is the Center uh, for Christian Study at your alma mater, UVA. Um, And actually, what's interesting is this one becomes uh, sort of the mothership of the whole consortium of Christian Study Centers. What was it um, about this study center that allowed it? Because it goes through ups and downs as well, similar ones to these other organizations. How does it kind of succeed so to speak uh, and stay so
1: it's an interesting story because you're right they do go through ups and downs um and it is still a story of time and place i mean charlottesville in the mid 70s has a growing evangelical population but very few evangelical churches so the evangelicals that are there are kind of united around campus ministries and they plant a couple churches one of which becomes Trinity PCA, uh, which has an enormous influence and still to this day uh, within Charlottesville evangelical circles and even more broadly nationally, right? Um, and so what we see is, is the timings right? And also the situations on the ground there it because UVA actually restricts, at one point in the early 70s, they restrict all campus access and they do not allow Christian groups to meet at all on campus. And I mean, that is, that's really perplexing for campus ministries. What are you going to do? Like, how are we going to meet with students? And so the the necessity of having a place also leads to this drive for a study center building. Um, so everything kind of comes together in a, in a story that, you know, the founders tell as basically a miracle that, the day they had to move out of the other building uh, a letter comes in the mail that there was a building just up the street for sale and they raise enough money to buy it. It's right on the corner, which is a a, probably the most popular spot for students right off grounds at UVA. And so this building becomes the hub and it starts like library with Schaefer's tapes with a library. And that's a key thing. Most of these places have libraries. It's not all study centers today have a library, but it is tough to think of a study center without a library. Um, most have them. And they just start having courses, and they start ministering to sororities and fraternities. And, and, and it, it, it kind of takes off. But the same thing, it, it is hard work. And so some directors just find that keeping it funded, the work of it all is, is just too much. People step down. Eventually, Drew Trotter comes in the late 80s, and it's on its last legs. They're, they're basically talking, should we shut down the Center for Christian Study Center and just make it a campus ministry to sororities and fraternities? And Drew, having finished his PhD at Cambridge in New Testament, he, he, and having worked at a study center in Milwaukee, he says, no, we, I think we can do something here. And he basically starts again. He rethinks the programming. Some of the programming before that was more modeled on the bridge just wasn't going to work. Um, people just couldn't give that much time to it anymore, where you'd spend like week year long diploma courses and stuff. Um, And so he changes the programming and then a few things start to happen. The times change in the nineties. There's a case at UVA that goes to Supreme court about Christian rights. And the, the study center is actually, there's a newspaper that Christians are publishing the study centers where they're publishing it and they get some notoriety and, and, Drew's kind of turning things around. He, he's really good at talking about movies and theology and people are starting to tune in to his monthly letters and to his talks and And he's finding some sweet spots as far as programming. Long story short, they start to turn a corner and when it really changes is in the late 90s, they take on a significant building project and they basically more than double the size of the study center and, so, and they make it they modeled on Labrie on some level. So you'll find that there are fireplaces on every level. So it could be like Labrie where Schaefer would talk about the fi- around the fire. But they make great spaces for teaching. They enlarge the library so it can hold a lot more volumes. And it's a it's one of the, the fifth highest point in Charlottesville. So you look out at the Blue Ridge Mountains in the city. It's beautiful. So they take into account the beauty of place. And suddenly the study center is just capturing students' attention. It's capturing attention from other places. And really people start to talk about, even on the staff, one of the things I thought was interesting when I did interviews, they would almost talk about the study center. And they said, we sometimes referred to it as another member of the staff because the building is that important. In fact, they've just finished another or in the midst of another capital campaign to enlarge the building again, because it's just that important. Um, So all of this starts to change and, and the shift that I like to really emphasize, and this is the one that makes the difference. They start focusing on undergrads and, you know, before they had focused on kind of people out of college, adults, um, and that's what Berkeley had done. And, you know, that's what Ligonier had done or the college students on their break or during the summer. But the real viability of these places is when you have a constantly renewing pool of of people who might be able to take advantage of the, their offerings, and you have a constantly uh, growing pool of alumni, right? And so UVA is an affluent school; their alumni are abnormally affluent. So you have a growing pool of affluent alumni willing to invest back into this study center, and that's when it takes off. When you start having, you know, a week-long finals week uh, snacks where you provide breakfast for. Hundreds of students and lunch and dinner for hundreds of students all week long. And parents love to see it and parents will invest and parents start saying, well, maybe you should go to UVA because they have a study center, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's when things really change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then it's at this point, one of the things in your, at the very beginning of your book, you note that the scope of what you're writing is you're not writing a comprehensive history. And it's really in the last chapter, the seventh chapter, where you, Note that actually, this center at UVA isn't the only one, right? We've looked at a few others, and then it's actually uh, Drew Trotter, um, largely he's one of the key uh, players in the forming of the consortium. Could you tell us a little bit just how this consortium kind of happens?
1: Yeah, well, in, in around 2000 or so, there's a meeting at Covenant College that Wade Bradshaw, who's now pastor at Trinity Present, Charlottesville. He's at the Francis Schaeffer Institute at Covenant College, and he tries to get together all the heads of ministries like study centers. And while they're there, a few of them realize we are working on campuses and we're doing a lot of the same thing. We didn't know each other existed, you know, and so they get together. You know, it's people like Carl Johnson at Chesterton House at Cornell and and uh, David Mahone at at. Rivendale at Yale and places like this, there's a handful, there's like five to seven at this point. And they start meeting and about 2007, as the story goes, they get snowed in up at Ithaca and they're there a little longer and they start dreaming a little bit about the future. And And the idea comes up, well, why don't we start a consortium? So by 2009, that becomes reality. Drew is the in charge of it. And it's not that they're like it's not like a church planning organization where they're trying to start study centers, but they're there to encourage each other. There's a ton of independence within it, and if people want to start one, there's at least a place to go and ask some questions. There's not a template. There's not a five steps to start a study center, um, but there's people to to ask and there's places to go look at what it looks like, and so that takes off. Um, And now there's over 30 study centers in the consortium and some partner organizations, and it's continuing to grow. And one of the things that Drew does very early on is he brings in um, uh, James Davison Hunter right after he's written To Change the World. And it kind of sets the tone for the direction the movement's going to go with this idea of faithful presence, that we're friends with the university, though friends with sometimes very different opinions, and views but we're not adversaries we're not in this adversarial role to the university we're coming alongside to be a faithful Christian presence um, and that's something I've always appreciated about the movement um, you know is that we want we actually appreciate the endeavors of the modern university though we don't think they're all right uh, or even it headed in the right direction but we appreciate the overarching desire for wisdom and knowledge mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, and and you do, in your conclusion, you kind of look at, you draw on Hunter and think about this reality of faithful presence and you speculate a little bit about what this looks like for the study center in the future. Could you just say a little bit about where you think the center is headed as you? Yeah, well,
1: I think, you know, it's definitely easy to see how there will be an increased need for study centers um, as kind of, it becomes harder to be faithful and present on a campus, you know, if there's anti-bias laws that make it impossible for an organization to have clear guidelines about the character and moral, uh, uh, guidelines of their leaders, you know, um, you can see how campus organizations might say, well, we're going to opt for meeting right off campus so we can be autonomous and not be beholden to the university's anti-bias rules. Um. I think there's definitely, so that's what I would call like a push factor, you know, like there there's going to be things making it more desirable to have a study center that are kind of like pushing folks out of the university on some level. But the pull factor is also just, these are compelling places. When people go there, when they hear about it, I would not be surprised if people listen to this and say, I, I'd like to start a study center. I mean, it's a compelling model where you say, you know, um, this is a way for me to be part of helping to educate uh, and, and disciple a generation. You know, um, there's a lot of evangelicals now out there with uh, advanced degrees. Some of them have positions at universities, but many, many don't. And this is a way for well-trained people to actually use their skills and knowledge to actually uh, invest. Of course, it's like any startup, it's going to be difficult um, and you have to, you know, have uh, you know a team with you but there's a lot of room there's a lot of campuses and one of the things I try to point out every time I talk about this is it makes a lot of sense to go for these kind of top tier tier one academic research universities but there are a lot of smaller colleges and smaller universities and kind of tucked away places that you know just they just haven't seen uh, modeled this kind of like robust, intellectual and spiritual uh, and cultural approach just to living out a holistic gospel inspired life. And so I'd love to see some people start founding study centers as smaller places um, because those places matter too.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been great chatting. Uh, But before we wrap things up, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, sure. So, right now, <laughs> my primary tasks are pastoring and uh, parenting uh, the four children I have. So, I'm I, it, writing is uh, taking a little bit of a backseat. But you know, the stuff that's been capturing my attention—I mean, history—and I have a biography in my in mind that might be possible. Um, but also, um, I'm just been thinking a lot about just the holistic Christian life and time and place. and um, So kind of like those around the theology of time and place and embodiment, that's kind of where my mind's been
0: at right now. Well, very much in keeping with the the topic of your book. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the book. Uh, And thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.